I think I was in ninth grade, eighth grade, and my grandparents had rented um, a, a beach house down in South Carolina at Hilton Head Island, and they said, whoever can get here, come and, and enjoy hanging out with all of us. And so my family, there was uh, five of us kids at the time. My baby brother was not yet born. Uh, we piled into my parents' suburban, and we drove through the night. We went all the way to South Carolina, and we loved it. We were from Kansas. We hadn't really been to the beach much, and we're at the ocean. So we basically lived in the water and on the beach the whole time. We just loved it. And uh, there were some decent waves there, and we, got, we had one of those styrofoam, you know, styrofoam uh, bodyboards. So we would go out, and we'd be riding all these waves. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of my brothers, I have, I have three brothers, and four of us were in the water. And since many of you know my brothers, I'm going to obscure their names for their privacy sake. But one of my brothers got stung by a jellyfish. Um, a tentacle, like, wrapped all the way around his leg. And he was pretty young at the time. And he started screaming in pain. And I, as the oldest brother who's right next to him, I, I picked him up, grabbed him, and I started running out of the water to take him up to my parents so that he could be comforted and you know, whatever you can try to do for jellyfish sting. So that left two other brothers in the water, and one of those brothers was on like a blow-up raft, and so he quickly crawled to the center of that raft, looking all around, because we didn't know where this jelly- jellyfish was. And I had another brother, and this brother was panicking, and this was the most fearful of the four of us. He's the one who's most prone to panic, and panic he did, and he actually went over to this raft and shoved the other brother off of the raft into the water, and climbed onto the center of the raft to preserve his, his own skin, literally. And the brother that was formerly occupying the raft, that was now in the water with the jellyfish, did not appreciate that very much. And we still mock my one brother, who um, saved himself at the expense of his other brother. That's, that's a story that goes around still at my house. Um, But why do I share that story? Well, the reality is this. You might not have been stung by a jellyfish or pushed your sibling into harm's way, but fear, all of us have experienced fear, haven't we? And fear can lead us to instinctively act in self-preservation, right? When you feel threatened, when you feel danger, what's your first instinct? It's to preserve yourself. And this often leads us to act out of character, right? to do something that that ordinarily we would not do. Or perhaps it doesn't lead us to act out of character. Perhaps it exposes the true character that was there all the while. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abram, and he calls him to go to a land that he would show him. And he gives him these great and precious promises of what God would do in blessing him and making a great nation of him. And you know what? This man, Abram, he believes and he starts off great. He displays incredible faith and obeys the word of the Lord. He goes where God leads, to a land named Canaan, 800 miles away from where he originally started. That's not convenient obedience. That's a radical step of faith. There in Canaan, he builds an altar to the one true God in the heart of this pagan land filled with shrines, and he worships the Lord. He builds this altar and leaves a legacy to the name of his God. This faith-filled obedience lands him a spot in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. We remember Abram, later called Abraham, as the man of faith, don't we? But then, after this initial response of faith and obedience There's a threat that arises, and Abraham's faith falters. I'd like you to follow along as I read this morning from our text in Genesis chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. 
for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female, or male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram experienced a crisis, a threat, and it was a test of his faith. Abram sought to preserve himself by his own schemes, and it led him to compromise. And this compromise resulted in a worse predicament, a worse problem than he even had before. Though the man of faith has feet of clay, what we see in the story is not just something about Abraham. We learn something about God. We see the saving power of God once again on display. And it highlights for us this essential truth. And it's a truth that you and I both need to grasp this morning. The truth is this, that salvation depends on the faithfulness of God. There's really two sections to our, our text this morning. First, we see the unfaithfulness, the, the unbelief of Abraham in the, the first section. Then secondly, in verses 17 through 20, we see the faithfulness of God. So let's just work through both of those today. Number one, unbelief, as we see in verses 10 through 16, unbelief leads to compromise. Unbelief leads to compromise, and it makes Abram's crisis Worse, We see the crisis in verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about being in, in Abram's shoes. There's no grocery stores. There's no deep freeze in the garage, you know, with a side of beef and a bunch of frozen pizzas, right, and hot pockets and all those things, whatever you store in your freezer, last year's deer, whatever you have in your garage. They had no freezer. Abr- Abram was a nomadic herdsman. His livelihood depended on his livestock, and his livestock depended on having water and grazing that was available. Famine meant no rain, which meant no grazing, no crops, meant no water to drink. Famine meant a slow and agonizing death for people who lived a life like Abram did. This is a serious trial. This is a real threat. This isn't some anxiety about something that might happen. He's just facing the facts. There is a famine in the land. Now, again, put yourself in Abram's shoes. God had told him to go to this land, right? God had brought him here, and he had promised to bless him and make him great and prosper him and give him this land, and Abram had responded in faith. He had taken God at his word, and he had gone. And when he gets there, when he responds in faith, how is that faith rewarded? Do things get better for him? No, things get harder. For all of his efforts, for all of his obedience, you know what Abram gets? He gets a famine, a severe trial. 
a grave crisis. Rather than rewarding his faith, God is testing his faith. And you know what? It's often that way for us as well. Those of us who follow Christ, when we, when we commit to follow Christ, we trust in him, sometimes things get harder, don't they? Not easier. It's difficult to be a follower of Jesus. We have to take up our cross. Jesus says, you will be hated for my name's sake. We face trials and adversity and even suffering. So we can identify a little bit with Abram, can't we? We know that God is there. We know what he calls us to do. But sometimes life can be confusing. Sometimes life can be just scary when we face trials and adversity. We wonder, where is God? Where has he gone? And what are we supposed to do with this, these crises that we face? Well, for Abram, he assessed the problem like many of us would, especially I see a lot of men, a lot of fathers and husbands in the room who are problem solvers and solution finders and conflict you know, resolution guys. What do you do when a problem arises? We figure it out, right? You figure it out and you find a way, and that's what Abram does. Abram is responsible for himself, but not only for himself, he's responsible for his wife and for all those who are with him. And the famine pushes him into crisis mode. He feels that he must do something and he has to figure this out. And naturally, he decides to go somewhere. That's what nomadic herdsmen do. They go from place to place. So he decides to go somewhere and somewhere that isn't affected by the famine, right? Let's go somewhere where there's water, where there's grazing, where we won't slowly die this agonizing death. And that somewhere is Egypt. Egypt becomes the natural choice because it's close by, and the Nile River provided a steady supply of water. There was yearly floods that irrigated the land. That was a safe place to go. It's a place where they could survive. So far, so good. That's not necessarily a wrong decision. You know, it's not the last time that God's people will travel to Egypt to avoid danger. Later, Jacob and his sons would go to Egypt to survive another famine. In the New Testament, Joseph and Mary would take Jesus there as a newborn to escape the, the jealous and, and, and sinister plot of Herod to kill all the male children. So I don't think it was necessarily wrong for Abram to go to Egypt, although sometimes many will read this text and say he should have stayed in the land. Maybe, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong to go to Egypt. In fact, you see that you know, Canaan, as we look at the verses before this, was occupied. The Canaanites are there. He does not yet possess the land, and there's a famine there. And we also look, we see that Abram, in verse 10, it says he went down to Egypt to sojourn. That's a word we don't use very often, but that's a temporary word. He's not moving there permanently. He's not putting down roots. This is a temporary visit until the famine passes. He fully intends to return. But going to Egypt avoided one problem, and it introduced another. He's sort of out of the frying pan and into the fire, so to speak. And that's where things start to go wrong. That's where we discover his error. We see his strategy to deal with the second crisis in verses 11 through 13. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he says to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. See, Abram's worried about a new threat. Not death by starvation, but death at the hands of the Egyptians. You see, the Egyptians did not share some of the same hospitality customs that Abram and, and some of the surrounding peoples were used to in the land 
of Canaan. Sarai was growing older, but at this point, she's probably about 65 years old. And remember, these patriarchs lived much longer than we did. In fact, Sarai lived until she was 127 years old. And I don't think that their lives simply had additional years tacked on at the end. I really think their lives were an expanded version of ours. Or you could say that ours are maybe compressed in that they just aged slower. So this puts her at about the midway point of her life. This would, this would put her, you know, it'd be comparable today to a woman who's in her 40s, still possessing great beauty. To put this in perspective, you know, in 2017, People Magazine named their world's most beautiful woman. It was given to someone who's 49 years old. So this, this is very realistic to think that this woman, Sarai, still possessed great, great beauty. And that made Abram not only proud, but also pretty nervous. He was afraid they would kill him so that they could marry his beautiful wife. So what was his plan? His plan is to urge his wife to tell a half-truth, to say that she was his sister. Now, this was technically true. She was his half-sister. Genesis 20.12 says that she was the daughter of Abram's father, though not the daughter of his mother, and that she became his wife. Now, why does he tell this half-truth? Well, he tells this half-truth not just to preserve his life, but keep this in context with all of chapter 12. Abram is telling this story to preserve the promise. God had promised to bless him, to make him a great nation, and to bring blessing to all the world through Abram. How could he become a great nation? How could he bring blessing to the world if his life is taken? So this isn't just self-preservation. He's, he's really wanting to see God's purposes accomplished, right? Sometimes we have great goals, but if we take the wrong path to get there, the wrong means, if we compromise and become pragmatic, that does not justify such action. Abram thinks he's doing himself a favor, and he thinks he's helping God out. But this is an act of deception, a partial truth. It's intended to obscure the full truth, and that means it's a lie. It's a lie. Absent in his decision, if you notice his thought process, here's where he goes wrong. Absent from his decision to go to Egypt, and absent from his sneaky plot, is any mention of God. There's no mention of of seeking God. There's no mention, like we see early in the chapter, of him calling on the name of the Lord. There's no mention of him trusting in the word of the Lord and his promise. Abram's taking everything into his own hands. He's trying to solve it all by himself, in his own strength, by his own wisdom. He factors in all sorts of things. The weather, you know, the, the famine, the, the Egyptians, potential situations. He factors in everything except the will of God. As Derek Kidner points out, he seems to take everything except God into consideration. And that's why he puts this plan together. And what is his strategy? What's to lie and and to to tell all these people that Sarai was not his wife? Now, why would he he adopt this strategy? Some of you wives might be thinking, so is he willing just to, like, give up his wife in order to save his own skin? Well, perhaps... Perhaps Abram is saying, you know what, you might get taken to be someone else's wife, but at least I'll survive. Maybe that's his plan. Um, It's interesting. I don't know why Sarai would agree to that. Um, I don't know if many of you wives would be up for that. Perhaps that was his plan, but I think there's something else that's more likely. I think more likely is that what he expected this strategy to do was actually to buy him time. If he was the brother, the relative, the guardian of this woman, 
then anyone who wanted to marry her would be responsible to, to pay a dowry, and there would be negotiations involved. Someone would approach and say, I want to marry this woman. What's the bride price? And he would probably say, let me think about it. Come talk to me in a couple days. By the time they came back, Abram and his family, they would be long gone. So Abram likely anticipated that this would buy him some time, that it would save his life and preserve his family, and it sounded like a good plan to him. But he didn't expect what happened next. You know, we can factor in a lot of contingencies into our plans, but we can never anticipate everything that can happen. And there was one factor that Abram didn't plan for. Abram was right that Sarai was beautiful. His love was not blind. You know, some people think their wives are the most beautiful women in the world, and good for them. They should. But not a lot of other people maybe share, you know, that, that opinion. Well, the Egyptians did share Abram's opinion of his wife's beauty. In verse 14, it says, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Sarai was beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that word got around to Pharaoh himself. And here's the problem. Pharaoh doesn't have to negotiate a bride price. Pharaoh is the king, and Pharaoh takes what he wants. We see here that she was taken by authority under order of Pharaoh into his house. Abram's plan did not work. You see, Pharaoh doesn't need Abram's blessing. He doesn't need permission. He sees what he wants, and he takes it. And he's so pleased with her that he sends great wealth to Abram. Livestock, servants, female donkeys, those are less stubborn than the males, and they're therefore more valuable. Camels, and it's interesting, at this time in history, camels were just beginning to be domesticated. So Abram was one of the first kids on the block to have camels. This was a a status symbol, a sign of great wealth. This is a Ferrari, okay? So he's, he's greatly blessed and enriched. But imagine how distressed he would have been. Yes, his life had been spared. He hadn't been killed, but he lost his wife, and she's under the roof and perhaps in the arms of another man, a foreign man. He had attempted to save both himself and his wife from famine. He had attempted to help God out by staying alive so the promise could be fulfilled, but now he'd lost his wife. And though he'd become materially more rich, every sheep, every servant, every camel would be a constant reminder to him of his failure, of his compromise, of his foolish decision, and the loss of his beautiful wife. Abram's failure was a failure to seek the Lord's direction. He made plans on his own without consulting God. His failure was a failure to trust the Lord's promise. He thought he had to deceive in order to enjoy blessing. He did not trust God's power trusted his own wisdom. He took things into his own hands. You know what? You know what happened to him? It's the same thing that happens to us when we take things into our own hands. We make a worse mess of things. See, Abram is an example of genuine faith, but he's also an example of imperfect faith. His faith falters. His faith lapses. He doubts. There's unbelief mingled with his faith. And it led to a serious compromise that put the mother of the promised child in jeopardy. Can you relate to Abram here? Have you ever tried to to help God out? Have you ever tried to sort of manage your own problems on your own and figure out a solution that 
that totally depended on your own wisdom, your own schemes, your own manipulation, your own money, your own skill, your own strength. I think a lot of times trials come into our lives, and because fear grips our hearts, we try to figure it out, and we try to solve it, and we resort to our own schemes, and you know what happens is we forget God's promises. We forget God's promises. Too often, it's not that we willfully disobey God. It's that like Abram, we simply forget him. We simply forget him. But thankfully, the story doesn't end here, does it? Secondly, we see that though unbelief leads to compromise, God is always faithful to his promises. He's always faithful to his promises. And this faithfulness brings deliverance and salvation for Abram. In verse 17, it says, But the Lord... In spite of Abram's failure, in spite of this grave predicament, no amount of scheming can, no amount of lying can rescue Sarai. Abram is stuck. It says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. You know, to this point, we've seen Abram speaking. We've seen Abram acting. But you know who's been silent and you know who's been still? It's God. To this point, God has not spoken, God has not acted, but now, now that the crisis is beyond what Abram can manage, now that it's beyond what Abram can fix, he's stuck. Now God steps in. God had made a promise to bless him, to make a great nation of him, to bless those who bless him and to curse all who dishonor him. And God always keeps his promises. And you know what? Though Pharaoh was powerful, Though he had all authority in Egypt, there is one to whom Pharaoh answered. And there is one over whom Pharaoh had no power, and that is the Lord. And it says, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Not just plagues, great plagues. In a preview of what will happen to a future generation of Egyptians who are holding God's people captive, the Lord afflicts Pharaoh and his household with great plagues. He's keeping his promise. He had promised to bless Abram, but to curse those who dishonored him. Now, Pharaoh was dishonoring Abram. He'd stolen his wife. He was violating his marriage covenant. Now, he had done so unwillingly, but he's still culpable. He had disregarded Abram's marriage and so comes under the swift and severe judgment of God. God's doing exactly what he said he would do back in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12. And Pharaoh is no dummy. He figures it out pretty quick. You know, later when the children of Israel as a nation were being held captive in Egypt, great plagues came upon the land. Except the one city, Goshen, where the Israelites lived, they were untouched by the plagues. We can imagine that it was likely similar here, that all of Pharaoh's household was touched by these plagues. But then there's Sarai, this beautiful foreign woman who's just been brought into town, and she's not experiencing any of this. She's not experiencing any of it. Likely, she would have been asked some questions Explain yourself. What's going on here? They quickly discovered the truth. She was not just a half-sister of Abram. She was his wife. And the only explanation for these plagues is that the God of Abram was now sending these plagues on Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not happy. He comes to Abram. And his questions here are a rebuke. Look at what he says. Verse 18, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? 
You know, his questions here, his interrogation of Abram, it should ring a bell for us as we've been studying through Genesis. Remember, God comes to Adam and Eve and says, what have you done taking this fruit? He comes to Cain, who'd killed his brother, says, what is this that you have done? The irony here in this rebuke is that it's the pagan king of Egypt who is the righteous accuser of the man of faith. And it's the chosen man of God who's the guilty defendant. Pharaoh here proves to be more righteous than Abram, at least in this instance. Or at least he's more fearful of God in this moment because he gives Sarai back. You know, he doesn't say, fine, I'm going to kill him so I can keep her. He goes, no, if this is what happens to people who come against, you know, God's chosen family, then I'm out. Count me out. Here's your wife. Take her. Go. Just as Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, Abram is sent out of Egypt. He's deported. He says, here's your wife. It's real staccato in the Hebrew. Here, your wife, take, go. Get out of here. And Pharaoh doesn't just send them away. We notice he has them escorted out. Verse 22, he gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away and all that he had. They keep the camels and the servants and the sheep and the donkeys. Pharaoh has them escorted out because he wants to make sure that they leave. He doesn't want them to stick around. And he wants to make sure that they're unharmed. He knows, just like Abram, that somebody might kill him and take his wife. And so he sends, you know, a security detail to escort them safely to the border and make sure that they leave. Because if taking his wife brings these kind of plagues, if someone were to kill this man, what might the God of Abraham do to the Egyptians? So he wants to make sure that he gets out of town. We can summarize all of it this way, like we mentioned earlier. It's the unfaithfulness of man contrasted against the faithfulness of God. God's plan was to bless Abraham, to protect him. But Abraham takes matters into his own hands. And he's, though he's called to be a blessing, the sad reality of this story, at least, is that his actions, rather than bring blessing, Abraham's actions bring disgrace to his wife. And it brings distress to Pharaoh and his household. He's not really being a channel of blessing right now, is he? This is failure. His unbelief, his unfaithfulness leads to failure and the opposite of what God intended to accomplish. But in spite of this, we see that God is faithful. We can't help but see the faithfulness of God here, that he delivers, he saves, he keeps his promises to bless and protect his people. Though Abraham stumbled and his faith faltered, God is faithful. There's two implications for this, two, two things I want you to take away this morning. Number one is an exhortation. I want to challenge you this morning. Here's the exhortation. When trials come to you, trust the Lord. Simple lesson. When trials come, trust the Lord. The reality is that your faith, like Abram's, is going to be tested. And it likely already has. Maybe it's being tested right now. When trials come, trust the Lord. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, listen, don't be surprised when the famine comes. Don't be surprised when you fear for your life. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when you lose your job, when your friend turns their back on you, when you have a prodigal child, suffering, difficulty, adversity is going to come. 
James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, God brings trials into our lives not to crush our faith, but to strengthen and purify our faith. So lean in. Don't run away. Lean into the trials that come and lean on the promises of God. Trust him. Trust him to see you through. Trust him to preserve you. Trust him to provide for you. Trust him to sustain you and comfort you. Trust him to give you wisdom. Trust him to meet your needs. When trials come, we must trust in the promises of God. You know, Abram's lapse in faith caused him to stumble. He was afraid and he wasn't sure if God would really keep his promise. And you know what happened because of that? He lost sight of his calling. And he failed to fulfill, in this story at least, God's purposes for him. We too have a calling from God. Abram was called to go to a land. We have been called to go to a people. Go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, teaching them everything that I've commanded you. We have been given a divine calling, a divine mission, and now God is bringing blessing to the world, not just through this one man, Abraham, but through the nation and the Messiah and ultimately the church that stands on that foundation. We are called to bring the blessing of salvation to the world as we preach the gospel and make disciples. But when fear grips our hearts... When we doubt the promises of God, when trials come and we, we jump into self-preservation mode, often we lose sight of our calling. We lose track of what it is that God desires for us to do. You know, when Jesus gives that commission to us as his disciples, he doesn't just give the command, he also gives a promise. He says, I am with you till the end of the age. We don't go on this mission alone. We don't face famine alone. We don't go into Egypt alone. God is with us. So though we may act alone and feel alone, we are not alone. We have great and precious promises. He has assured us of his authority. He has assured us of his presence. He has assured us of his provision. He has assured us, like we sang this morning, of resurrection, so that even if men do take our life, God will still preserve our souls and one day raise us up again because of those promises we ought to be able to sing like the psalmist in psalm 118 out of my distress i called on the lord the lord answered me and set me free the lord is on my side i will not fear what can man do to me the lord is on my side as my helper i shall look on triumph on those who hate me It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your spouse. Don't trust in your parents. Don't trust in a government. Trust in the Lord. He is able to save. Trust in the Lord when trials come. Don't lose sight of the calling he's given us and the promises that sustain our mission. But I don't only want to give you an exhortation this morning. Secondly, I want to leave you with this encouragement. Be encouraged this morning that though your faith may falter, salvation depends ultimately not on us, but on the faithfulness of our God. 
Salvation depends on the faithfulness of God. You know, as we read this story, we go, yes, I need, to, I need to do better. I need to trust more. I need to obey. And yes, you do, but you can't perfectly. But the good news is your salvation does not depend on your perfect obedience. It depends on Christ's perfect obedience. God is faithful, and God will keep his promises with or without you. And despite what you do, you can either participate and obey and experience blessing Or you can miss out on what he's doing, but he is going to accomplish all his purposes. I love what God says in Ezekiel 36. Later, God would promise deliverance to the unfaithful nation of Israel. They had worshipped idols. They had placed their trust in foreign nations and compromised. But God promises to deliver her despite the nation's failures. In Ezekiel 36.22 God speaks, he says to the prophet, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. And catch this. I want you to learn this about God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Why does God save? Why does he keep his promises? Why does he do glorious and miraculous things to to rescue his people? It's not for our sake. It's not because of how good we've been or how obedient we are. He does it for the sake of his name and his glory and his reputation so that all the world will see that this is a God who keeps his promises and this is a God who needs no one's help to bring about his purposes. God says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when, through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. See, God will be faithful for the sake of his name. And it is on this sure and certain promise that we can base our hope. Though you are unfaithful, God will keep his promises to save. So believe, rest in those promises, trust in those promises. When you fail, when your faith falters, confess your sin, repent of that, return once again to Christ and believe that his grace is enough to save you. Believe that it doesn't depend on you, that depends on Christ. You see, Christ has been faithful in your stead when he was born He came not just like Abraham. He didn't just leave Ur to go to Canaan. He left heaven to come all the way here to earth. And though Abram is an imperfect example of faith, Christ is the ultimate and perfect and true example of faith. He trusted his father and he obeyed all the way to the cross. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. He did not stumble. He obeyed all the way to death. Death at the hand of hostile enemies, which is what Abram feared. In his life, he fulfilled the perfect obligation of the law. And in his death, he redeems us from the consequences and the penalty of the law. And this righteousness that Christ accomplishes is a gift. It's a gift that you and I can receive by faith. It's a gift of righteousness to be received by imperfect believers like you and me. Believers whose faith sometimes stumbles Sometimes we falter, but Jesus never stumbled, and his righteousness in our, is, is ours. And because of Christ, God will keep his promises to us.
for us. Are you far from Jesus today? Are you aware of your failure and your sin? Perhaps you've never trusted in Christ. You've never laid hold of his promises by faith. I want to invite you today to humble yourself, to stop trying to do everything on your own and simply rest in the promise of God that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Come to him today and experience his power. He is faithful. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what failures you have in the past, he is able to save. Salvation depends, aren't you glad? It depends on the faithfulness of God. Because he's faithful, we can put the failures of yesterday behind us, and we can face the trials that will come tomorrow because his grace and his power and his presence are ours, all because of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so, so faithful. We are comforted this morning to know that though we stumble like Abram, and we try to figure things out and fix it on our own, and we make things worse so often. Lord, you are able to save. And our salvation depends on you and you alone. We praise you for that. We praise you that your plans will be accomplished, that your purposes will be fulfilled, and that your promises will be kept. That is a rock upon which we stand this morning. Pray that you would encourage us and strengthen our faith, that we might walk in faith, walk in obedience to you, so that we might fulfill the calling you have given us to go and be and make disciples. We pray all this in your powerful name. Amen.